0: understand the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you for the warm, excited welcome. there. That's great. I am quite excited to be here, actually, this morning. Just, It's such a blessing to be with you guys already. Uh, great time of singing, praising the Lord with you. I want to just, as Pastor Ray said, continue on in this series you guys have been working through, uh, titled Jesus the Triumphant King. And uh, It has been such a blessing to go back. I've been listening along with you sort of thing through some of these messages. Uh, It's amazing to hear how the Lord is challenging you guys over and over again. I don't know if you've picked it up, but I've definitely picked it up. You have been challenged primarily on two things. We need to work through and understand who Jesus is as our triumphant king. I'm sure you guys have heard that a lot by now. Who is Jesus as our triumphant king? But then the second question is, and what do we do about it? How does it change our lives? How does it impact us to such a degree that we believe it, and we live it out, and it affects our decisions, it affects our daily life. And so, really, today is going to be more of the same. The goal of today, this passage we're going to look at, is going to be just like it has been for the past weeks you've been going through this series, that we, we, would, we would be encouraged to believe it. That you would really, as we read the Word of God together here in a moment, you would be encouraged by the Holy Spirit, built up in your faith, and you would believe it, and it would impact the way you live your life. I Just by way of reminder, maybe to help... a little bigger picture in the book of John. I know you've been working through it, but it's helpful for me to do this anyways as a reminder. Think about Jesus' prayer for a minute. I know you guys were back there a little while ago in John 17. Jesus prayed, and, and four times he mentions and he asks the Father that his followers would believe that he was sent by the Father. Do you remember that? He's so concerned to make sure his followers believe that he is the Son of God. This is what he wants, that we would believe it, and as we believe it, we'd have life in his name, right? Which is what John says just a little further on. I'm sure you guys have heard that verse as you're studying through John John 20, 31. He says, these are written so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing it, you'd have life in his name. This is the goal, over and over and over again, as you come before the Word of God, that we would be impressed to believe Jesus Christ is the triumphant King, Now, in this passage today, I basically have the privilege of just continuing to brag about Jesus then. And as we get to brag about Jesus, hopefully our hearts are drawn up in that, right? Drawn up in faith in that to see him more and more. And you may say, why? Why do I need to see more of Jesus? Well, it's because you need that more than anything else in the world. All of us need our eyes open to see more of Jesus more than anything else in the world. Not with our intellect, but with our hearts. And as our hearts and our affections start to desire Christ more and more, you begin to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, right, there's nothing in this world that compares to the surpassing worth of knowing who? Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's what we're trying to grow up into. That's where we want to get, that nothing compares to this. Now, I know we've all come from crazy weeks, And maybe that's not where you're at right in this moment. I just love the fact that we got to pray together in church the way you guys did. We don't do that at our church, and I appreciated it doing it here. And so, if you're okay with it, I'd love to pray one more time to ask the Lord to open our eyes together. So, let's pray. Heavenly God and Father, we do acknowledge you are the king. We agree wholeheartedly with that. But our our hearts and our minds are so easily distracted by the things of this world. We are so easily drawn away into other things of busyness of life and all sorts of schedules and all sorts of things. And we come here tonight and we do affirm and we acknowledge you are the king. But Lord, our hearts need to be centered on that. I pray that you would overwhelm us with that reality tonight as we open your word. Make us see it again with fresh eyes. Build us up in our faith in it. Grow us up in it to such a degree that it would continue to mold us and sanctify us and change us to live boldly and confidently for you. We ask that you would do these things that only you can do by your word and your power and your Holy Spirit. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, we're going to read this passage. Oh, yes, and as we are about to read this passage, I'm getting a wonderful reminder that we do have Bibles. If any of you guys are here and you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. We'd be happy to give one to you. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like to take that home, please take it home. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take it and have that life-giving book in front of you. So with that, we're going to open up our Bibles to John chapter 20, verse 19. And before we read this, I'm going to tell you ahead of time What my three points are going to be. You don't need to see them on the screen, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time. The reason for that is that as we read this passage, you will hopefully, Lord willing, see those points jump off the text as we read them. Okay, so three points. The first one is fear and uncertainty. The disciples are full of fear and uncertainty. And then we'll move to the second point, which is peace as we see Jesus. And the third point is peace as we serve Jesus. Those three points. Fear and uncertainty, peace as we see Jesus, and peace as we serve Jesus. So with that in mind, let me read this passage to you. I'm questioning here. Do you guys normally do this? We all read it together? Okay, I don't want to do it wrong then. So stand up. Stand up. I know I've seen it. I'm just, is this always or sometimes? I can't remember. So all the time. All right, let's do it together. John 20, verse 19. Here we go. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld from them. Amen. Thank you. All right, point number one. We're going to jump right into this. Fear and uncertainty. I'm sure you can see it jump off the page there in verse 19, right? I'll read it again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. What I want to do is spend just a little bit of time in this first point almost having us sit like flies on the wall in that upper room for a minute. Okay, I want you to imagine we're sitting there listening to these guys talk about the craziness that had just gone on over the last couple days. Can you imagine the whirlwind of things that they had been through as they start to contemplate how in the world this city that we live in just killed our rabbi, killed this man Jesus? How could this have happened? Things have gone crazy. And they're terrified by it, right? They've got the door locked because by association, they are the guys that everyone saw following him around, and and it makes a lot of sense. It's not too far to assume that they would be next in line if people continue to be angry about this message. But then also they probably would have discussed how Jesus had willingly gone to his death. He didn't fight back. He willingly went to his death. And Jesus had said to them, he told them ahead of time, believe that I am going to be leaving you and then I'm going to be coming back. Like, it's like we should have clued into that. We missed that thing. And then also they'd probably discuss how shamefully they had acted. Right? They all abandoned Jesus. I can't believe we did that in his time of need. All the hopes they have, though, of this reigning king. They had so much expectation. This ruler, he was, he was on a good trajectory, right? He had everything going. He was doing the miracles. He was getting the crowds. Everything seemed to be working. And it made a lot of sense that he was going to be the king. But now, he's died. And remember, they hadn't seen him yet. And there's this question Right? There's this question, how, what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to react to this? And I wonder, in the midst of that sort of confusion and that uncertainty, they thought about the promises Jesus made. And maybe they thought, man, this is pretty scary. If they're willing to kill him for it, maybe they're going to kill us for it. Maybe we should go back to being fishermen. You can imagine that wouldn't be too far off. They're questioning, what should we do? But at the same time, they're probably also thinking they would have been good young boys, good young lads listening in their teaching, and they would have heard a lot of things from the Old Testament as well that were prophesied that came true as Jesus went through this suffering on our behalf. He was pierced. It was prophesied he would be pierced. His bones were not broken. He's killed by the chief priests and the elders. The tomb was empty. All these things and so many more prophecies we could list off, all pointing to the fact that something's real and something's going on here. How do we make sense of that? And the fact that they may want to kill us for believing this. There's this real tension in the midst of that. It said that John, at least in John 20, verse 8, it said that he believed when he saw the tomb was empty. Right? So there's some belief going on there. They're like, this thing's real, but, but what do we do with it? And really it boiled down to, as I was studying this, I think two main questions they were probably asking. What in the world was going on in their day is the first thing. How do we make sense of this? And the second question is, what should we be doing about it? And if we connect for a minute as we sit there with the disciples in that room, we probably don't ask that different... We can probably ask the same kind of question of our day, can't we? We look around us. Look at what it takes to be a believer of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ in our world. And we say, what in the world is going on in our day? How do we make sense of it all? Then we also ask the question, and what should we be doing about it? How should we be living in light of that? I want us to be able to connect with that sort of uncertainty and that anxiety that those disciples would have had. Like they locked the doors because they knew how real it was out there. I want us to be able to connect to how... Nervous they would have felt to be able to continue follow Jesus, it's going to cost them. Think about it. The world around them had been, they hated God so much they were willing to kill him. And they wanted to organize their system in such a way as, in order to do nothing with him. It's not so different from our day. The world around us that will not believe Jesus Christ as king is organizing themselves in such a way as to deny him and do anything they can to suppress the reality of Jesus Christ as the risen king. There's a very real anxiety that we feel that they most likely felt in that same moment. Now, there's a lot of talk. We begin to talk about anxiety and fear. There's a lot of talk about anxiety and uncertainty and fear in our day. It seems to be the growing, growing, growing problem. I mean, you read articles, you see all sorts of things on it right now. It's, it's exploding. People are struggling with anxiety and fear about all sorts of things. But what I want to do tonight is sort of make a little bit of a distinction between the types of anxiety the Bible talks about. Because there is a distinction here, and I think it's important for us to properly apply this text to understand what the differences are. And it will just say it's two big categories. There's two big categories to sort of acknowledge here. The first one is worldly anxiety. And we all know what it is. We're all living with it every day. Think about things like money and love, and success, and power, and security, and social status, and appearance, and and the list goes on and on, and the world around us is wrestling with the exact same things. It's worldly anxiety, and you question, what does the Bible have to say anything about that? Absolutely. Let me just remind you for a minute, Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal." For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he goes a little further on in Matthew 6, and he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. He's speaking to worldly anxiety here. He says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, and your body about what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here he says, For even the Gentiles seek after these things. The whole world struggles with this stuff. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Bible absolutely speaks to that first category of anxiety and fear. But there's a second category, and this one is what hits home for us tonight. This is what lines us up with this text here tonight. The second kind of anxiety only comes for those who know and believe Jesus Christ is king, but we also know that it's going to cost us if we live like that's true. There's an anxiety that comes, and I know we all know it, the worry that comes from standing for Christ when other people don't want to around you. There's a fear in it, right? There's there's this worry that comes from sharing your faith with somebody. And I'm not, like, I mean, I can tell you, it's a lot easier to share your faith with somebody who's a stranger. Try sharing it with a loved one or somebody who you're close with, a relative or a close friend. It is hard because it requires you to sort of sacrifice what could happen when they don't want to hear the gospel. There's anxiety that builds up in that, similar to what the disciples are. What's it going to cost me to live for Jesus Christ? That's what we need to connect with here tonight as we work through this passage. So are you afraid of the world we live in? Are you afraid that the world is making it harder and harder to be a Christian in our day? Do you feel the weight of knowing you want to continue to declare and say, I am a servant of God, Jesus Christ the King, and I know that means it's going to cost me. It's going to, it might cost me my job, it might cost me relationships, but I know it's going to be worth it. But there's that anxiety there, right? There's that fear there. It's this second type of anxiety we need to connect with. The disciples were the same. Think, as they followed Jesus, they gave up their jobs, and they followed him. And they publicly let it be known for three years that they were wandering around with him, right? That was what they would do. They'd follow the rabbi around, and everyone would know, those guys follow that rabbi. They all knew it. And it's not too far off to imagine that, as they, all, they also know, then those are still the guys that follow the one we killed, Right? And to stand, can you imagine contemplating? Do we stand up and continue to say, Jesus is the king? We go out in the streets and we say, listen, he is the king no matter what you say, right? And you kill them. That's terrifying. It's going to have consequences if we do that. But they had seen that the tomb was empty. And there was some hope in the midst of that. And I sort of wonder as they sat there in that room. They started putting some of the pieces together, right? This is the moments just before Jesus shows up. And you guys know where the story is going. But just before, as they're pondering, I wonder if their mind went back to the Old Testament a little bit and thought of some of the expectation that was to come from Jesus Christ the King. I'd love to go back just to three points in Isaiah. As you guys get to know me, you will know that I love the book of Isaiah. So almost every sermon I preach, I try to put Isaiah in there. So bear with me here. But... Uh, there's some amazing prophecies of expectation of what this coming king is going to do. Let me remind you of some of them. And, and imagine the disciples, they would have known these verses. They would have known this, these, these expected promises. Isaiah 9, 6. You know this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. and in the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. There's this expected king coming who's going to bring peace. Now, where is that? Is that going to happen? What's going on? Right? They were wondering. And then later in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he, this coming one, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You know it. Right There's this coming one who is literally going to bear the weight of the wrath of God on our behalf because we can't bear it on our own. Every one of us standing before a holy, perfect God that we just sang to, we cannot stand. We all deserve to die. Our only hope is that someone would come and bear that penalty for us or we would suffer eternally under the punishment of God. And there's this promise of this coming one who would take that chastisement, that punishment, and put it on himself and give us peace. That was the hope. That was the expectation. They knew that. But what's going on? Where is he, right? They would have wondered. And then Isaiah 54. I love this one too. For the mountains, God promises. Isaiah 54, verse 9 and 10. I'll just read verse 10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills will be removed, like the earth may start to crumble. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. What a promise, right? There's this covenant. There's this promise of peace that is more sure than the mountains on the earth. This is what's expected. This is what's coming. And then if they didn't think of those things, and I'd like to think that they did, but if they didn't, at least they would have remembered their conversations with Jesus in John, right? What does Jesus say in John 14, 25 to 29? There's this great passage. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. And think how this would have spoken to them if they remembered it. They would have been so worried and anxious, and then they're remembering. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you would believe. And now it's taken place. And the hope is they'd believe, they'd begin to believe this truth that we are celebrating today. One more, one more conversation they might have went back to. John 16 29 to 33, the disciples said to Jesus, Now we know, now we know that you, all things that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answers them and he asks them a sort of knowing question. He says, Do you now believe? He knew they were struggling with it still. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will scatter each to his own home and you will leave me alone. They would have thought of that, I'm sure. We, we abandoned him just like he said. And yet I'm not alone, Jesus says, for the Father is with me. And then he said, and I hope, I, I imagine they remember this for sure, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. think of all that expectation. It may not have been those verses but I'm sure their minds were just swimming trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together of the expectation they had of the coming king and now the tomb is empty and there's a chance this thing's real but we're not sure and if we live like it's real it's going to cost us and there's this sort of what are we going to do with this? You feel that anxiety as you sort of struggle to live as a Christian in this world? I'm pretty sure this thing's real but man if I live like on fire for it it's going to cost me. And then Jesus shows up, right? Then we celebrated Easter last week. Here for them for the first time, they see him. Jesus shows up and everything changes in their heart. I'm sure you can imagine. It goes from this uncertainty and this fear to gladness and confidence and rejoicing. This sort of brings us to point number two. There is peace as we see Jesus. You see it right there in the text? Look at it. Let's read it again here. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them. Just that by itself would be like, and I know we read in other Gospels, they were terrified and all those kind of things, but I'm sure eventually it led to like, yes, Jesus is alive. They rejoiced with him, right? Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. Those are the first words. Do you see all those things in Scripture pointing to the one who's going to bring them peace, establish peace, be that covenant of peace, bear their chastisement so that they would have... All of it is in this one. And as he comes and stands in the room and says those words, it's affirming. It's intended to sort of overwhelm their heart with confidence to say, this is all true. It's all about me. I am the king. This is exactly what they needed. More than anything else, this is what they needed. There'd be some that would say... I think that they would try to say that this text is simply just Jesus sort of saying, hello, peace be with you. But I don't think that's the case because John writes it twice in this text. He says it two times. There's an emphasis there for a reason. And I think it's important for us to stop and see that reason. Jesus said that to emphasize and give them boldness and confidence that everything that's written about him is indeed true. And we need the same. You understand, the word of God is written so that we would read it and receive the same thing today. We, need that, we have that same anxiety, and we need to see Jesus. And as we see him, we would be overwhelmed with that same confidence. Look what happens to their emotions. Verse 19, they're fearful. And verse 20, they're rejoicing. That's what happens. As we really see him, as we really appreciate who he is and know who he is, we begin to rejoice, and we're filled with confidence and joy, because Jesus has shown up. He is alive. It has so many implications. It just sort of floods my mind that I was preparing it. Just let me list off a few. Because Jesus is alive, he's the one who has conquered sin and paid the price on the cross. Because Jesus is alive, he has conquered death and he's risen from the dead. He's the promised triumphant king that all of scripture, not just Isaiah, all of scripture has pointed to. He's the one with all power and authority given to him. He's the, he is sent from God the Father and he is the Son of God. He's the exact representation of who God is. He's the one who bore our chastisement so that we could have peace. He is, literally is, the covenant of peace. He's the high priest of the real throne, in the real throne room of God, the great high priest. He's all of those things. Our minds should sort of, like I said, I'm excited to brag about Jesus today. All of those things for us, and our minds and hearts should overwhelm with joy as we hear and contemplate it together. Now, I know you guys like to do something with the kids, so this is, this is where I want to do it. I'm going, to, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say these words, Jesus is. And then not just the kids, because we get to have fun as adults too. I want you all to shout out the thing that you know and connect with and know to be true about Jesus Christ. Okay, kids? I want you to shout out what you know to be true about Jesus when I say Jesus is. Okay, you ready? We're all going to do it together. It might sound funny, but we're all going to do it together. Ready? Jesus is our peace. Amen. To all of it. Right? It's so good to follow King Jesus. Now, just because we have to, because of the name of this whole series, I want us all to do it together. I'm going to say Jesus is, and we're all going to say our triumphant King. Okay? Ready? Jesus is our triumphant King. Amen. And that sort of sums all of those other things we just shouted out, right? He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and everything that that implies is cut up in that. Man, we need to celebrate that. That's what the disciples needed more than anything else. They needed to see Jesus. When they did, that anxiety and that fear turned to gladness. And you see it. And it's because they believed that Jesus was the triumphant king. That's how it happened. Man, you follow these guys' stories for the disciples? This led to increasing and increasing faith. And they did things that were incredible. Just to name a few, not too far from here, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's literally going to stand up. Remember, they're scared and they lock the doors at this point. But in Acts chapter 2, he's literally going to stand up in the streets and he's going to say this, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified, in like a crowd of thousands of people that would have got him killed or could have easily got him killed. You hear the boldness in it all of a sudden because he's certain of it. Now, the Lord blesses that, and there's so many that come to faith and believe the same thing, right? And not too long after that, what happens in Acts chapter 5, I love this one, they're sharing over and over. They, they, they know it to be true so much that it affects the decisions they make, and they can't help but share it with people around. They can't help it. They have to. People have got to know, and you got, i got to brag about Jesus some more, whoever I'm talking to. That's where they're at, and they're, they're doing that continually, and they get arrested by the religious leaders. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 40... It says this, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them. They arrested them for sharing this news about Jesus. And they charged them not to speak the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. But they, the disciples, they left the presence of that council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And every day they continued in the temple, and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ that the Christ is Jesus, that he's the Messiah. They couldn't stop. They wouldn't stop because they had such confidence and such boldness. And most of these guys, if you pay attention to their story, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but if you follow a little bit of the history of what we know of these disciples, most of them suffered brutally, dying, proclaiming this message that Jesus Christ is king. Now, I don't say that. Hear this. I don't say this so we'd stop and say, "All these poor guys, they died for it. What I want you to see is how overwhelmingly convinced they were of it. So overwhelmingly convinced that Jesus is king that it doesn't matter what you do to me. Because there's nothing, as Paul says, that compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Can I just say that we need to be that convinced? That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what you need. I know it. You know it. We are living, if we're honest, probably not all the time, but sometimes in our life at least, we're living lives in this world, and the world is not impressed because we talk about the Prince of Peace from Isaiah, meaning where our lives are full of stress. We say we're Christians, but we don't go bragging about Jesus Christ, our King on the streets very often because we're afraid of man. But that's the reality. We still wrestle with that anxiety. I feel like we sometimes are still stuck in that room before Jesus showed up, that place, right? We don't really believe it. We haven't, it hasn't sunk into such a degree that it impacts the way that we go out into the world. What we need more than anything, and what the disciples need more than anything, is to see Jesus show up, It's to hear Jesus speak to us, peace be with you, let him show us his hands and his feet. We need to be that convinced. That's what we need. And that comes. You see, Christ has risen. He has shown up. We do have access to him. We know that, right? The the, the, the challenge is now that we need to be continually delighting in him and rejoicing in him. If I could remind you from Philippians 4, 4 to 7 says this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let, not your, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming back. Do not be anxious, here speaking to anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. What we need to do is to see and delight in Jesus over and over again. We are weak-minded individuals. I'm sorry to tell you that, but I love you that. I can get away with it because I'm a visiting speaker. And we're weak-minded. We are. And we quickly forget who the king is. And we need to do- rejoice in the Lord and do it again. Rejoice in the Lord. I love actually the passage earlier in Philippians where Paul says the same thing. He says in Philippians 3.1, I think it is, he says, rejoice in the Lord. To say the same thing again is no problem for me and it's safe for you. And I love that verse because it means like Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord. And to tell you to do it over and over again is the safest place you can be. It is because you forget so quickly, but if you continue to rejoice and continue to delight in him and continue to pursue him and you find yourself sitting with him often, it's the safest place for your soul because you're not distracted by the thing that your neighbor's doing that's bothering you. You're not distracted by the the driver in front of you that's annoying you. You're not distracted by whatever else it might be that gets on your nerves and and gets you off focus and anxious and stressed about worry and money and all the the other things in this world. You're not because you're just rejoicing in the Lord and everything else gets put in perspective. It's a safe place to be. I heard it said recently that really when we think about that challenge to rejoice in the Lord or have intimacy with God... It's really, our lives are a battle between distracted anxiety and intentional intimacy. And I found that helpful. It's one or the other. There's this battle between distracted anxiety over here, where you're just distracted by anything it might be. And it's different for each of us, but we've all got them. Or there's this intentional pursuing and rejoicing in the Lord. That's the battle. We have the opportunity to to delight in Jesus, just like the disciples did in that room. Are we taking hold of it? So I have a question for you, and I, I, I have this little pet peeve sometimes when I do it myself, but also when I see other people do it. You go to church on Saturday night or Sunday, and uh, what happens is you listen to the message, and it could be an amazing message, but by the time you get home, you've completely forgot about it. Right? So I want to ask you a question, and what I want you to do, your homework is to write this question down. So you can even, if you don't have a pen, take out your phone just for a minute, no checking Twitter, just take it out for a minute and write this question down. And your job with this homework is today, tonight or tomorrow, you have to ask that question to some other poor victim. Make it real uncomfortable. Now, fair is fair. They get to ask it back, okay? But it should lead to a great conversation that continues to have you apply this passage we're talking about. So here's the question. What are you doing to be intentional about intimacy with Jesus? Like, what are you actively doing consistently, regularly, to, be intimate, to, to pursue intimacy with Jesus. And you get to hear their answer, and then they get to ask you the same thing. Right? We're going to have three of these questions, just so you know, before we get to the end of this. But that's question number one, and it can lead to any, anything you know that works as you pursue Jesus, reading and prayer and memorizing Scripture and singing His praises and, and all sorts of other spiritual disciplines you might do to pursue Jesus Christ. But have a good conversation and hold each other accountable in it. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Scott, I know I'm supposed to pursue intimacy with Jesus, but, but how do I cultivate that devotion and still manage the stress in my life? Because like it or not, it's still there. How do I do that? Well, I want to go back just briefly to that Philippians 4 verse because I think it really gives us great insight into this. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 talked about that. It says, do not be anxious for anything. So how much should we be anxious for? Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And you may have heard this formula before. It's a simple one. Be anxious for nothing. There's no thing in your life you should be anxious about. How do you deal with that? Well, the other half of the equation really helps a lot. But in everything, in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Because as you take it to the Lord in prayer, you are pursuing intimacy with him and you get to find that you dwell and walk with Jesus and you delight with Jesus. And you get to experience what the disciples did in that room when Jesus showed up. Now you guys, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because I see how much you guys love prayer in this church. But you still may be wrestling with anxiety and you say, listen, Scott, we like it at church but it's not that easy. It can't be that easy. Well, if it's not that, then what else are you trying to do to suppress your anxiety or to deal with your stress because I guarantee it's not godly. You're chasing after some escape, social media, entertainment. Maybe you're eating your feelings. Maybe you're addicted to something and you just go there over and over again and that's how you handle the stress. All those things don't work. But man, take it to the Lord in prayer, and everything by prayer and supplication, bring it to Him. This is how we handle it, and the God of peace will guard your heart. There might be some, I think it's appropriate here to just briefly mention, because I'm not intending to talk about worldly anxiety too much, but there might be some who who have very severe anxiety, and they need to have someone help, help them and guide them through it. I would just encourage you then to find somebody. Specifically, I would encourage you to find a biblical counselor to walk with you through that. But for the most of us, we know that we can just take it to the Lord in prayer, and He is the, the healer of our soul. He's the wonderful counselor. Now, just a challenge on prayer our pastor, Norm from Redemption London, said this just recently, and uh, I thought it was a punch in the gut for me. It was a good challenge, so I'll share it with you. In, on this topic of bringing it to the Lord in prayer, he says, if you struggle in your prayer life, you're likely wrestling with pride and self-sufficiency. Right? Isn't that honest? If you're struggling to go to God constantly and delight with Him and bring it all to Him in prayer, it's because you're still over here on the pride side saying, I got some of this on my own, and that's why you feel stressed about it. But if you're growing in your prayer life, knowing you need to depend on him and depend on him and depend on him, man, oh man, the pride goes away. You realize you are not independent. You need to trust the king. You need to come to the king over and over again. It's a good place to be. So this leads to question number two. You can, ready to write down question number two? This one maybe is a little bit pointed. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? And I don't want to, don't let that person who you're asking get away with, oh, it's pretty good. No, 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 like, like, what does it look like for you? When do you get away and just dwell with God? Tell me what it looks like. Because oh, it's always pretty good, it's easy to brush off the conversation. This is intended to be a good conversation, right? You got me? So that's, what, that's question number two. We need to understand Jesus Christ, as we seek him and pursue him, he literally liberates us. Right? We know he liberates us from sin. We know he liberates us from condemnation. He also liberates us and frees us from worry. There's no need for worry and anxiety anymore. And as we understand that, I really think what starts to happen, we understand it, we, our hearts are, are built up in faith in it. We see Jesus Christ as the king that we're singing about here together tonight. And man, we see it on, on, on Saturday night when we're singing. We get a glimpse of it here, absolutely. But as you see that Monday morning... When you go to work and you know it confidently, when you walk out the door after spending time with God and you go do whatever it is you do to bring honor to God, do you see it then? Do you have that confidence then? It happens as you delight in him and walk with him. It happens more and more and it increases and increases until you start living boldly for him. And the world around thinks you're a little weird. But that's great because hopefully they're seeing Jesus instead of you. This is what starts to happen. We have peace as we see Jesus, and that leads to our third point tonight, peace as we serve Jesus. As we get this confidence from knowing and pursuing intimacy with Jesus, it begins to allow us to carry out what Jesus calls us to do. And he calls us to carry on with his mission. Look at it, the end of this sort of text that we're working through tonight. Verse 21, John 20, 21. To the end here of 23, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. He says it again, but this time he, he has another thing to say, right? He says, peace be with you as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and, they, uh, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld them. Do you see how Jesus connects? First, he shows up with them and he gives them peace because we all need it first ourselves. But once they have it and Jesus says, peace be with you and they have it, now he says, now it's your turn. Go and share the message. Go, Go and continue the mission that I have come here for, which is to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's saying. Go and do the same. It's your turn now. And if we understand, he's saying that the disciples then... They're not alive anymore. We're alive. We read the Word of God and we need to understand the Holy Spirit is intending to say to us, it's your turn now. That's how we apply the Word of God here. It's not just them that are sent, but all of His followers are sent. So how do we live lives that follow the King, that live passionately concerned about His mission? What does our life look like? What can we point to in our lives that say, I'm concerned about this mission to seek and save the lost? Jesus is explicitly sending us. Like, it's very explicit here in this text. It's a call to evangelistic lifestyle. Sharing the gospel. So question number three, that you get to write down and ask somebody else after you hear about how their prayer life is. Who have you shared the gospel with recently? Man, I'd love to sit down with every one of you and hear that story, because that's exciting times. Those are exciting moments when you get to in some, and it can be by email, it can be by text, it can be by all sorts of different ways, and there's amazing ways that the Lord chooses to work through and get his message of the gospel to young and old alike. But who are you actively continuing to share the gospel, share the love of Jesus, share the hope of Jesus, share the the condemnation they're lost in, and how they need Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation? Who are you doing that to lately? Do you know and do you believe the word of God is saying it is expected from all followers of Jesus Christ? It's expected. None of us get off the hook. You can read it in every gospel. Jesus is commissioning in some way, sending out his followers to go and do the same. And I know it makes us anxious. I know, I know it makes us uncomfortable. Right? We don't want to do it. There's pride in us. I'm going to look silly. We got all sorts of reasons why. But that I don't know if you realize that's the point of this text. This text is to encourage us with that anxiety. Do you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the king to such a degree that you make decisions in your life, regularly intentional decisions to carry out his mission? Now I know as we're worried with that, we sort of, what we need, I think what we need is to understand and believe what we've been supplied with on that mission. It's not just go out on your own and go figure it out. In this text, there's some amazing things that the the Bible is showing us and teaching us, that God is showing us and teaching us, that he's supplied us to carry out this mission of sharing the gospel just going to name three of them, and we'll discuss them a little bit. The first one is just the very fact that Jesus is risen. He's alive, and it is true as true can be. He's come, he's died, and he's risen. And in his rising and showing up here in this moment, it just sets a stamp on it. He is everything that Scripture promised he would be. And because he is, you are not going to be disappointed if you live following him. You'll be disappointed if you don't. You won't be disappointed if you live serving him and doing what he calls us to do, no matter how ridiculous it looks. Because at the end of the day, he's the king and he wins. Anything else is going to look sort of silly at the end of the day. Right? We should be bolstered up just because Jesus Christ is the king and he's alive. But on top of that we're also given ins- explicit instructions. And the, the very fact that we are given explicit, go, I'm sending you out, go and share the gospel. The fact that we're given that by God tells us that, that, that there is incredible power in it. Like there's incredible power. If you understand, like think about it for a minute, anything God says is going to happen. Like God said, let there be light. <laughs> and there was light. And God said, about the gospel, this is my mission, to go and seek and save the lost, go and share the good news, go and spread the gospel. There is power in the message of the gospel that has nothing to do with you. You're called to share it, but it is the message of the gospel that has power as God goes forth and does the work that only he can do. Look at Romans six. You guys know this well, I'm sure. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's power as you walk Sharing the gospel, you are walking as close in line with the plans of God as you can. That is the safest place for you to be. You, do you realize that? It's intended to encourage the disciples here, right? As he sends them out, you can trust because I'm sending you. It's a good mission and it's going to happen. It might cost you your life. Don't worry about it. It's still a good mission. Think about those who come against those who are sharing the gospel. They're not coming against you or me. They're coming against God. That is terrifying. That is terrifying. That is not going to go well for them. They're coming against the Creator of the universe. As we go on mission with God, sharing His gospel, that's wonderful. We're not going to be disappointed. They are going to be drastically disappointed if they would oppose it, right? This should sort of connect to how powerful it is. Should connect to what He's saying here at the at verse 23. It almost seems a little bit confusing, but if you think of it this way, it helps you make sense of it, right? He says, if, He says to the disciples, "If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from them from any, it is withheld." It's a little bit weird to read that, your mind sort of wandered to weird places with it, right? It's not like the disciples are going around playing duck, duck, goose, deciding who's saved and who's not. That's not what's intended there. What's intended is as you go out with the message of the gospel, it is so powerful, there are some who are going to believe and they're forgiven and there's some who are going to refuse and they will be damned. That's That's how powerful it is. Do you realize that's the message we get to share? It should give us confidence that success in sharing the gospel is not seeing everyone converted. Success is doing what you're told to do with it. And as we go when we share, God works through it. Romans 10:17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, so God has chosen to use us as his followers to share that message, and God powerfully works through it. It's such a sweet place to be. It really is. The third thing that we're supplied with, like we've got these kits and our t- tools in our toolbox, right? We know Jesus Christ is risen, we have the powerful message of the gospel, and we have the Holy Spirit supplied to us as well. Look to what he says here again. He, he says to them, and he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not. I, I don't think it's correct that he, they received it in that moment because we know from earlier in John, he says, I have to go away first, and I also don't think it's correct because you go later into Acts at the Pentecost and they receive the Holy Spirit then. What Jesus is saying is you need the Holy Spirit as part of this sending out. You need the Holy Spirit to help you and work with you because it's his power that is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 17 is exactly what he said that earlier to prepare them. Let me read it. John 16, sorry, 7 and 8. If if I do not go away, Jesus says, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will. It's his job to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Again, do you know how confident you should be then when you are carrying the powerful message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit's in line with you, and Jesus Christ is king? What are we afraid of? We're afraid of man still somehow. It's good for us to at least be honest with it and wrestle with it and ask. Because what we need then, just like the disciples, we need to see more of Jesus, right? We need more of Jesus. And as we do, we go out in peace and confidence in it. So the question I want to ask now is, what's holding you back? What excuses then are you using? Are we saying we're anxious because we don't know how to do it? Are we saying we're anxious because we don't want to do it wrong and we might mess it up and thinking it's in our hands? No, no, don't don't be silly about that. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts you. You can sort of blunder through this as long as your intention is there and you're understanding the basics of it. Don't worry about it. Just get out there doing it, and the Lord will counsel you and grow you and give you the words. We're worried we're going to look silly. To all this anxiety, Jesus Christ is what we need. You need to see him. If you saw him rightly, if we really saw him as the king, we wouldn't be worried. So we need to seek more of him. Now, I know. I know we use excuses, and I've, I've been guilty. This is where the Lord hit me with this. I'll just be honest with you guys. Uh, this is where the Lord hit me as I was working through this challenge on evangelism. We use the excuse, and I call it an excuse. We say, it looks sort of holy. I'm just, I'm praying for opportunities. What we mean by that, it's code for, I'm going to go to Tim Hortons and sit down, and if the Lord happens to bring someone by to sit down and say, please, sir, share the gospel with me, then I'll share the gospel with him. That's waiting for an opportunity. Jesus is sending us to go look for opportunities. Do you see the difference? We should be actively engaging and like planning like, who are my neighbors who don't know the Lord, who have got some kind of relationship? I'm going to engage with them deliberately to build relationships so that I can invite them over and somehow share the gospel with them. And, and my spouse and I, we're going to plan a conversation to somehow work it in, to make sure we work it in, to point them to Jesus Christ, and God is the creator of the universe, and how do they stand before him? How do they wrestle with that reality? Like, are you intentionally making plans for it, or are you saying, I'm waiting for an opportunity? I'm guilty of that, for sure, sometimes. That's not what we're called to. Or maybe we say, I don't have time. That's another popular one. I'll tell you, we're working through this study in our small group uh, on Don Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines. Highly recommend this book. A great book to work through and sort of encourage one another to pursue the Lord, to, to... use Bible reading and prayer and scripture memorization and evangelism and all these other things and fasting all all to pursue God and have more intimacy with him. Exactly what we're talking about here. But one of them is this chapter on evangelism. And in this chapter, he deals with this way better than I could probably on the excuse of I'm too busy. So I think it's going to show up on the screen. I'll read it to you. He says, we should acknowledge the common objection that people do not witness because of lack of time. Between job and family and church responsibilities, there simply isn't enough time to go witnessing. Before we adopt this objection to evangelism, let's ponder this. Do we really want to say that we're too busy to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ to make disciples? Look at Matthew 28, right? Do we expect that at the judgment, Jesus will excuse us from the single most important responsibility he gave us because we say, well, I didn't have time doesn't work. Like, it doesn't hold water. We try to use it as an excuse, but it is not a good excuse. And I know, I, ultimately, I know we're just scared. We're scared to do it. But that's exactly what this text is for tonight. That's exactly what it's intended to do, is to bolster up our faith. Know what you have been supplied with by God to carry out His commissioning, His great plan of seeking and saving those that are lost. He's given us himself as evidence that he is the king. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the gospel. Those things are supplied to us that we would go out with confidence. I just want to challenge you tonight. Get out there. Literally go and share the gospel with somebody. I mean, you might need to soon, because someone might pull you aside and say, hey, I've got to ask you three questions. And one of them is going to be, who have you shared the gospel with recently? If you haven't done it yet, you should get out there. But it needs to be our heartbeat. But it needs to be that our heartbeat is in line with the mission of God. To say, there are souls out there that need to know the Lord. They need to understand who Jesus Christ is. And man, the other side of that is, my heart just can't stop bragging about how good Jesus Christ is. And I want to tell people about him. This is where we need to be. We said at the beginning of this message, and I think you've said it over and over again in this sermon series, what we need is to see Jesus, and as we see him, it impacts the way we live. Tonight, this text is calling us to see Jesus. Hopefully, you see that. And as we do, the way it should impact our lives is that we go out there and share the gospel. If you're looking for application, it's not hard to find tonight, right? The word of God is drawing us into this, challenging us with this. Now, one closing thing I just I want to encourage you with, because I know this message might feel a little bit like a punch in the gut. The disciples here are not on full throttle the moment they open the door here. Right? You read through the rest, you guys are going to study through the rest of this book. They get it, and I believe they believe with all their hearts at that moment. They're sure, and they're glad, and they're rejoicing, But they still need to be reminded. It seems they sort of ponder a little later about going back to become fishermen again because Jesus meets them on a beach not that long from now, right? They're still wrestling with it. And they'll go through and they need to be reminded of their mission a couple times. You're going to see that. And and I love that that's in the Bible in this book of John because it's encouraging for us not to feel like you go out those doors tonight and you better, like the first guy on the street, I I feel bad for him, we're all going to grab him, right? But you don't need, like, I just want to speak a little bit of grace into it by understanding the, gospel, the, the apostles, the disciples are, are not perfect the moment after they see Jesus. They're a work in progress still. And God is using these moments to sanctify them and grow them. But they are progressively moving towards this confidence and the boldness to the point that they will die for it. I'm not saying it to let you off the hook. I'm just trying to give a little bit of grace here at the end, right, that you'd understand that Jesus is calling you to this. The word of God is calling you to this. What steps are you taking to grow in it? You don't do it on your own and try and do it just to impress God. Do it because you see Jesus and it builds so much confidence in you. Eventually to the point where we live like weirdos in the world because we can't stop bragging about them. And the world might make us pay for it, but that's just this world. It's not our home. I, I, I want to close in prayer and I'm going to just pray the Lord would continue to impress upon us that kind of confidence and that kind of peace. So pray with me. God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to have our eyes open a little bit to see who Jesus Christ is, to have our eyes open to appreciate and understand the salvation that we have that has been supplied to us. We're grateful because someone has shared the gospel with us and we have been able to hear it and respond as your Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, now we want to be used as vessels to continue on that mission. But there is nothing more important than carrying out your mission to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. And yet we confess we are so easily distracted. We're so easily drawn away into all sorts of other things. Those distractions are things that would Pull us away from this mission. Help us to either use them as a means to share the gospel or get rid of them. Help us to have increasing, increasing, increasing boldness. But that we would have boldness to live and serve Jesus in ways we thought we'd never be able to. And I pray that that would come from seeing Jesus. I pray that that would come because we know and believe that you are indeed the triumphant King. We know and believe that you are the only means by which we get peace. We know and believe that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth. You are all of those things and so much more, Lord. Help us to see you more. Open our eyes more today that would result in that kind of living. We're gonna sing a song here, I Believe, Lord, and as we sing it, I pray our hearts would want to sing it honestly. Not sing it because it's the next thing to do at our church service, but sing it honestly. We believe Jesus Christ is the king, and because we do, we want to live for you, Lord. Help us with that this week. Help us to see a difference in it this week, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand with us as we respond and worship?